The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have had a series of programs recently uh, that are examining how archaeology has been changing in uh, the past in the 20th century, 21st century generally, but more specifically how archaeology has been influenced by the political situation. We've talked about the changes in preservation archaeology in law and more generally in the way archaeology is done in a heritage context in many places all over the world. One of the issues that has been first and foremost at the front of everybody's thinking recently is, of course, how is archaeology going to change in the age of Trump. And that's something we've explored in two previous programs. But today, our focus is going to be more academic to some degree and also more publicly oriented because my guest today is Dr. Eric Klein, who is a professor of the former is professor of classics and anthropology, former chair of the Department of classical and Near Eastern languages and civilizations, and the director of the Capital Archaeological Institute at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Eric Klein was my very first guest on this program and provided a very unique perspective on the linkage between presentation of archaeology to the public and how it's bolstered and transformed by academic research and how we bridge these two venues. Uh, Dr. Klein has uh, won a number of prizes for teaching excellence and presentation and has... uh, generated a number of very significant volumes, both academic and public. And because of that background, I wanted to bring him to this program. Uh, He has recently written a very significant volume called 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed. And it is my pleasure uh, to introduce Eric Klein to the audience. Eric, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be back. It really is, and I think that one of the uh, reasons that we've bring you, brought you back to the program is because you have a very unique 
perspective that sort of bridges the cradle of civilization areas, if you will, to the thrust of how uh, civilization has moved and progressed, especially Western civilization. And you've identified turning points in that trajectory. And I think they're very relevant to understanding the world as we go forward. So why don't you give us a little bit of perspective on how the idea for 1177 BC, the year of civilization collapsed. How did that idea uh, germinate in your mind uh, based on your background and how you saw archaeology moving along? Mm-hmm. Well, 1177 BC, it's, um, it, it's the equivalent of... Uh, of 476 B.C. or A.D., which most people have heard of because that's the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, Fifteen hundred years earlier or so, there was another major collapse, which most people haven't heard of, and that is the collapse of the Late Bronze Age in a region stretching from Italy to Iran and Afghanistan and from Turkey down to Egypt. Basically, in the Late Bronze Age, which stretches from about 3,000 to 1,000 B.C., give or take, um, round about the year 1200 or just afterward, all of the major civilizations suddenly collapsed, and these would be the Mycenaeans and Minoans in Greece, the Cypriots and Cyprus, the Hittites in Turkey, uh, the Babylonians and Assyrians in um, what is now uh, Iraq and North Syria, uh, the Egyptians, of course, from Egypt, the Canaanites in what is now Israel, Lebanon, Syria. All of these civilizations had been interacting in almost, you know, basically a globalized way for much of the late Bronze Age, say from 1700 B.C. on down for a good almost 500 years till 1200 B.C. But then suddenly, one by one or one after the other or all at the same time, they collapse. And this wonderful uh, international globalized world in that region just comes to an end. All the major players just basically disappear and we wind up with um, dark ages in those whole regions. Uh, probably the one in Greece is the most well known which lasts to about 900 or maybe even 800 BC. So this is a calamity that I would say is is the equivalent to the Roman Empire falling, but um, very few people outside of the field of, of archaeology actually know that that took place. So one of the things that I wanted to do in writing this book was to uh, talk about what it was that caused this collapse, but I also wanted to talk about what actually collapsed. So the beginning and the end of this book are exploring what might have um, led to the fall, but the internal chapters, like chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, are about Mycenaeans, Mitannis, Hittites, Egyptians, Canaanites, so people understand the, the, the breadth and depth of what we lost when everything collapsed, because basically had to start all over again. People lost the art of writing, they lost the, the art of making big buildings, things like that. So I had a lot of fun writing this book, uh, in part because this is what I do, this is what I love, this is my area of specialty. But there were also, um, I would say, correlations to today. The more I researched and the more I wrote, the more I realized 
that the world that uh, I was living in during the years that I was writing it, from about 2007 until 2013, uh, every time I wrote about something from back then, I thought, oh my God, that's happening today. So the, the book actually starts out with, a paragraph that says the the economy of Greece is tanking, there are foreign warriors and uprisings in uh, areas across the Middle East, uh, Turkey's afraid it will be involved, Israel's afraid it's going to be involved, and so on. And I said, the year is 2013, question mark? Um, yes, but it's also 1177 B.C. Let's explore the similarities, and I go on from there. So it, it seems that, the, I mean, in a way, it's unfortunate, mm-hmm. but the timing of the book could not have been better because it has resonated then with people worried about where we are going today and whether history might repeat itself. And in this particular case, it may well, because a lot of the (laughs) symptoms uh, that were around in 1177 B.C., we've got today. And um, I think if we don't watch out, we may well be headed down that same path. Uh, So that that was kind of the gist of the book. And uh, as I say, it seems to have hit uh, a note of resonance. So it's been uh, selling fairly well. Let's start back, Eric, if we would. I think this is a fascinating topic, and I think the thrust of where we want to go is in that direction. Let's talk about the uh, emergence of the critical period that we discussed, that you just discussed. You're talking about the collapse of the Bronze Age. Let's track it back to the beginnings of the Bronze Age, which are what, about 3000 BC, correct? Yes, so in about 3000 BC, we get the invention of bronze, which uh, if you take 90% copper and 10% tin, you get bronze. You can use arsenic, too, but I don't recommend it because you'll die pretty soon of poisoning. <laughs> but around um, about 3000 B.C., in a region stretching from Egypt to Greece to, to Turkey to Iran and Iraq, um, bronze takes the place of copper. It's a, it's a much better metal to use. Um, The problem is that while copper is relatively uh, abundant, in fact, much of the copper came from Cyprus. The name Cyprus comes from Kipros, meaning copper. Um, Tin is much harder to get. So you could maybe get some in Cornwall, up in England, um, maybe get some in Turkey. But the majority is going to come from Afghanistan, the Badakhshan region, which is uh, also where the region of uh, where lapis lazuli comes from. So in order to get the tin all the way, say, to Greece, it's got to be brought overland um, hundreds of miles from Afghanistan to uh, what is back then Mesopotamia, to the, you know, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Then it has to come across to the coast of North Syria, and then from there come across to the Aegean. So this is uh, a very uh, precious raw material and is susceptible in case the trade routes are cut at any point, which is in fact what happens towards the end of the late Bronze Age. If you want a modern parallel, think of um, oil today and how important it is for gasoline and everything else. Well, tin back then, 
as my colleague Carol Bell in England has said, tin back then is the equivalent of oil for us today. It's what literally everything ran on. So by the time we get to the late Bronze Age, which, as I said, starts in about 1700 B.C., this is what everyone is using, uh, and everyone is trading and bartering. You know, they don't have money at that point, but they're trading for this stuff. So um, the raw materials form the basis of the international interactions, the globalization in that part of the world, if you will. So in addition to tin and copper, we also have to realize they are trading for gold, most of which is coming via Egypt. Uh, they're trading for silver. They're trading for uh, all kinds of other raw materials that made the world go round back then. And in, in such an interlinked uh, economy, basically, it's almost a world economy with a, a G8 or a G9 back then, if you will. Uh, if anything little bit goes wrong, it's such a complicated system that it'll throw the, the whole thing out of whack. So if you've got like a trade route cut or if something happens to the Mycenaeans or the Hittites, the reverberations are going to be felt throughout the system. So this has been developing since 3000 B.C. By 1500 years later, by, say, 1500 B.C., everybody is happily interacting. And the parallels to today are um, perhaps surprising to some. They had diplomatic marriages where one king would marry another king's daughter, in part to cement a treaty. They had diplomatic embassies. They had economic embargoes. They had uh, wonderful marriages on the royal level and lower down, of course. They had also very bitter divorces. And we've got all of this recorded in the text. They're writing back then. If you can read Akkadian or Hittite or, or Egyptian, um, then you can read the stories of those people back then. So I was able in the book to, to look at, at life back then, but also, as I say, to uh, bring in some parallels to today. So what, what was always amazing to me in studying ancient history is, in many ways, there's nothing new under the sun. We are so very similar to the way that they were back then, that uh, uh, there's a lot of things that just we keep doing because we're human. So you read a schoolboy's text. A schoolboy didn't want to go to school. His father made him go to school. You, you know, you have somebody else who doesn't want to get married, but her father is making her, and so on. Um, so uh, I was able, I think, to bring it to life a little bit, but also to, to make the point that um, really, as the old saying is, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. And that's pretty much the case, I think, in this, in this particular instance. One of the things that you've brought, about, brought uh, to our attention here, and it's a topic that I'd like you to elaborate on, uh, is that basically that currency at the time of the Bronze Age, in fact, bronze. And bronze clearly had an impact on the way complex societies were evolving and uh, the nature of the networks between them. And uh, that just fashioned and gave rise to networks of cultures and civilizations that the world hadn't seen before. And after the break, which is uh, we're going to take right now, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how these societies 
were individually characterized, if we can, and how those networks expanded across the heartland of civilization. We'll be right back with our very special guest, Dr. Eric Klein, right after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Schuldenrein with a... Uh Another installment of our series, uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, my special guest today is Dr. Eric Klein of the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Klein's specialty, if I could take the liberty of calling that, is an ability to transmit 
the messages of archaeology to not just academic audiences, but also to the public at large. He's very skilled at that and has written 16 books, many of which uh, address those particular situations. We've been talking about one of his areas of expertise, which is the Bronze Age. And uh, as many of you who have listened to the program, we have done a number of uh, installments on the Bronze Age and the emergence of Western civilization at an accelerated rate at that time, um, was the linkages between bronze as a currency, Eric has paralleled it to these, the significance of oil and, and gas in this day and age, but how uh, societies actually changed over the course of that. And one of the uh, issues that I want Eric to explore at this point is how do we go from the emergence of that civilization to what you identified as the collapse in 1177. Eric, why don't you guide us through that process? Uh, yes, sure. Well, if we start uh, back again at about 3000 BC, this is really when we get the transition from cities, towns, and villages to the first kingdoms and empires. So, for instance, we've got the Sumerians in what we would call Mesopotamia, right, the region of North Syria and Iraq. And uh, the Sumerians, uh, along with the Egyptians, would be two of the world's first uh, kingdoms, even maybe empires, if you would. Uh, and they're going to last, well, the Sumerians last for most of the third millennium B.C. This is the first time we really see kings and we see a sophisticated society. Uh, the writing that they've got, writing is also invented about 3000 B.C. at the same time as bronze is. We've got uh, little things for a couple hundred years earlier that lead to the development of writing. But um, sometime after 3000, certainly by, say, 2700 B.C., we've got people writing down lists of kings. We have uh, epics. We have stories. We have poems. We've got love poetry. I mean, we've got the written records from that time period. And so we're able to tell an awful lot about those societies, even though we're going back almost 5,000 years. So this is where you've got some of the antecedents that are then going to lead through the Middle Bronze Age and into the Late Bronze Age. And so along the way, you'll get, for instance, people developing law codes. And we know that there are law codes already in the third millennium in Turkey uh, and elsewhere. But by the time you get to, say, about 1800 B.C., you come to Hammurabi, the king of Babylon, mm -hmm. and the law code that he put together, which has an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth as part of the, the law. So you're already getting fairly sophisticated uh, societies. The economy comes along with that. Um, you definitely need writing if you're going to keep account of what's coming in and out of your palace, if you're going to keep account of anything else as well. So by the time we get to, by say, 1500 B.C., which is the period where I really begin uh, discussing these cultures in my book, we've got everything in place that you might expect for major kingdoms and empires that are interacting with each other. So we've got writing, we've got laws, we've got kings, we've got stratified society with classes, we've got everybody 
from royalty down to craftsmen, down to free people, and even slaves. Now, you know, the only way you could be a slave back then is a prisoner of war or owe from a debt or be born into slavery. Those are the, basically the three ways. But if you're not a slave, then um, life is pretty good, and you could be uh, you know, almost anything you want, but depending upon what uh, class you're born into. So by the time we get to this, this period, uh, in, in this couple of centuries before the collapse, we can see, especially from the writing, as well as from the material culture, the actual objects that are sent back and forth, we can see that now what had been separate societies like Minoans in Crete and Mycenaeans in Greece, Hittites in Turkey, Egyptians in Egypt, they are now interacting, and we can see the influences of one on the other. In some cases, as I say, we've actually got it in writing. We know that Amenhotep III and Akhenaten married the daughters of the king of Babylon, for instance, and we even have letters that describe the gifts that came as part of the dowry. So we know just how involved they are. And it really is a small world, as, as we would call it. Uh, everybody is just two or three connections apart. If you didn't actually know somebody, you knew somebody who, who knew them. And so it was doing quite well until there are a series of calamities at the end of the Late Bronze Age, round about 1200 B.C., that I think uh, all coalesced. Well, one of the calamities on their own, like earthquakes, would not have done it. Uh, famine on its own would not have brought everything down. But if you've got five, six, seven, eight calamities all at once, you've got a perfect storm. And so what had been um, a very advanced, uh, integrated set of societies suddenly comes crashing down within the space of, in some cases, a couple decades, but certainly no more than a century at most. And we can actually watch it uh, happening almost in slow motion, as it were. Well, in that connection, Eric, what I'd really like to know, and this is sort of going to where we want to uh, point folks in terms of their concepts of, of how the parallels are between today and then, were these coincidental events? Was it kind of a feedback loop that uh, exacerbated the situation generally? How did it work? Was it just a meeting of, of, of coincidence, of happenstance issues, or, or was there a cause and effect relationship between all these events? Well, this is the, be the big question, of course, the $100,000 or million-dollar question. It used to be, like when I was an undergraduate and in graduate school, that we pointed simply to one uh, one cause, and they said, oh, it's the Sea Peoples. They did it, and this is S-E-A, as in the people that come from the sea. Because right. the Egyptians record two invasions uh, by these Sea Peoples, one in 1207 B.C. and one in 1177 B.C., and that's where the title of my book comes from, is that second invasion. And uh, it's we actually, we're the people that call them the Sea Peoples. The Egyptians give them their own names. There's actually nine different groups that come in, all kind of united. Um, most of them we don't know where they come from, the, but we can guess the Shardana may come from Sardinia. The Shekelesh might come from Sicily. Uh, the Ekwesh could be the Achaeans, the Mycenaeans. The, uh, the Danuna might be Homer's Danans, again, 
uh, Achaeans or Mycenaeans. The one group that we do know is the Peleset, and the Peleset are identified as the Philistines, and we know the Philistines from the Bible, also from archaeology. So as early as like the 1850s or 1860s, uh, a French Egyptologist named Gaston Maspero, he pointed to the text that the Egyptians were writing about these invasions, and he said, look, the Sea Peoples caused the collapse. And so that was always seen as the main reason. Now, uh, it's much more complicated, uh, of course, and now we don't even know if the Sea Peoples were uh, actually the oppressors, like you know, Vikings coming in and doing raids, or if they were victims of that time period. Because it turns out there are other things happening. For one, we know there's climate change back then. We've got the pollen analysis. We can see that the, the, everything's becoming drier and more arid, uh, and that um, things are what we would call today a drought, almost a, a 100, 200, or even a 300-year drought that really affects everything. The text back then also mentioned famines. They're saying our people are starving. Please send grain. So we know that's going on. Um, we also know from the written text that there are uh, invaders, like the Sea Peoples. The Egyptians mentioned them. There's also um, a written text from the site of Ugarit on the north coast of Syria, which talks about enemy ships having been sighted and causing damage. We've also got archaeologically evidence of destruction of many sites at this time. The problem is we can't always tell who or what caused the destruction. So it's possible some of them were caused by these invaders. Uh, others may have been internal rebellion. If you've got a drought and famine going on, you could have the lower 99% rising up against the 1% back then. We've also got archaeological evidence for earthquakes at this time, and that will also um, cause or create some of the destruction. So in answer to your question of are these coincidental or are they related, I would say <laughs> simply yes. Some are coincidental, but others are related. Uh, and it's possible that you could draw a, a linear line through some of these. That is, if you've got climate change and drought, that will lead to famine. That leads to people moving. That will lead to invaders. Um, but I think it's not quite that simple. It's a little bit more messy, because into that equation, you then have to toss the coincidental earthquakes that are happening at that time and various other things as well. So uh, as I say in the book, I think that what happens if, is that we end up with a, a perfect storm because you, you really could survive a famine and a drought if you had to. You know, a lot of people will die, but not everybody. Same thing with an earthquake, same thing with rebellion, same thing with invaders. But if you have them, you know, one, two, three, four, all in a row, then I think um, you're running into something that you alluded to, basically a, a multiplier effect. That is, if you've got a third catastrophe, that is going to multiply the problems that were caused by your first two uh, catastrophes. And then you're also going to get a domino effect. So if the Mycenaeans go down, that's going to impact the Minoans, that's going to impact the Hittites, that will impact the Egyptians, and so on. So uh, what I also invoke in the book towards the end is uh, looking at whether uh, kind of chaos theory or complexity theory will help. Uh, and that is this idea that in a complex system, 
had back then, and of course we have today, that if one thing goes wrong, you know, what happens? Uh, if you have a meltdown in 2008 on Wall Street like we had, how does that impact, you know, China? How does that impact England? So we've got the, the same sort of thing. So the idea that I, so what I, the the conclusion I came to was that in 1177, basically everything that could possibly go wrong did go wrong. And starting in about 2008, we also had pretty much everything that could go wrong started to go wrong. So um, if you wanted to, to put up a checklist and say, what did they have back then? Uh, and what do we have back now? You would check off most of the things, right? Drought back then, drought now. Climate change then, climate change now. Famine then, famine now. Earthquakes, rebellions, invaders. And the only thing that we, you know, that you could question, do we have today, do we have the sea peoples? Well, I would actually say yes, we have those as well. But there again, it depends which way you look. You could say, well, ISIS, those are the sea peoples. They're coming in destroying everything. Or you could say, well, if you want the sea peoples to be kind of victims, then look at all the refugees that are that were flooding and are flooding Europe now, uh, in part because of the Syrian civil war. That's just like um, people fleeing their lands uh, as, as you've got problems. So I think we've even got the sea peoples today. So then my big question is, well, if we've got all the same factors today, what do we do about it? Because the big difference is that we've got better technology today, and we're aware of things. You know, I don't think the Hittites were aware uh, of what caused a drought. You know, I know they did not cause their climate change. You know, they're not driving SUVs. But still, they probably didn't know what it was. Well, we know what it is. And then the question is, how can we, you know, fix things so that we don't go down the tubes? And this is where my basic feeling is, you know, if, if these things, if you argue about whether or not we've got climate change, then you should probably err anyway on the side of caution. So if you if you think you do and you want to try and fix things, then good. And if you don't think we have it, well, you might try and fix things anyway because you've got nothing to lose. Um, but I don't think we're out of the danger zone here. Remember, this This book came out uh, in 2014 in hardback and then in paperback in 2015. We now have even more of a situation, I would say, uh, with the election of Donald Trump and uh, especially rolling back things as he's either doing or threatening to do on the EPA and everything like that. We may uh, exacerbate all the conditions I was talking about based on when I was writing in 2013, and it may be that I'm I'm going to have to write another sequel or a sequel called 2017, The Year Civilization Collapsed Again. <laughs> I hope it doesn't come to that, but it's certainly something to think about. Something to think about indeed, and we will explore that in our next segment. We will be back in a short time, and uh, don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. 
Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with our special guest. Uh, Dr. Eric Klein of uh, George Washington University. He is the director of the Capital Archaeological Institute. Eric has just has recently written a volume called 1177 BC, the year civilization collapsed, and uh, is was drawing parallels between what happened then at the end of the Bronze Age and some of the events at a transition point in civilization, if you will, for right now, uh, what's going on right right today at the present. Um, Eric, one of the things that you mentioned in the last segment that I found was very interesting was uh, drawing an analogy, say, to the collapse that we most recently experienced, or near collapse, that we experienced in 2007-2008 with uh, the greatest recession we've had since the uh, depression of, of the 1930s, was the fact that now our advantage in coping with many of these issues post-perfect storm, as you indicated, is the fact that we have technology. My question to you is, does technology really help in a situation where the world is, is so much, uh, such a, a more complex entity as it, than it was in those days? And moving forward, and I know you're you're working on yet another volume that explores situations even post your earlier book. So why don't you give us a little bit of direction on that and give us a glimpse into what you're coming up with going forward. 
Yeah, okay. Well, I think the technology, um, it both does and doesn't help us. Uh, technology uh, does help us in so far as we're far more aware of what's going on. It's, um, and we're more aware of what's going on around the world. If you were back in the late Bronze Age, it could take weeks, even months, to figure to find out what had happened elsewhere, uh, even within your network. Uh, we've got one letter, for example, from uh, a king uh, up in Babylon and that region, who basically writes to the Egyptian king saying, "I was sick. Why didn't Why didn't you ask me how I felt?" And <laughs> right. then we had another letter right afterward that says, "Oh, I didn't realize you were that far away." Right, and it would take weeks <laughs> for messengers to get across. Now today, with our technology, we can learn about events halfway across the world uh, in a matter of moments, uh, and so we know what's going on. So, uh, from that point of view, it's very, very helpful. But um, I'm not sure how much technology would necessarily help reverse things if it got that bad. Uh, we were able to rescue things after 2007, 2008, but that was from a variety of, of methods and angles. Uh, and, you know, next time we might not be so fortunate. We do, though, have uh, the technology that can help reverse things. You know, we know that if we're suffering from climate change and if we're causing it, that we could fix that. Uh, that was not the case back in the late Bronze Age uh, because the climate change back then was Mother Nature, and they didn't even know, what do you do, just pray to the gods or goddesses. So we do have that, um, that going for us now. But, uh, again, if we have a series of, of kind of coincidences that all happen at once, whether they're, um, they're made by us, whether they're human-made, or whether Mother Nature intervenes, uh, it's, not, it's, not necessary that, uh, nef- it's not necessarily the case that our technology will intervene to save us. You know, one thing that, I, that ancient historians note is that every civilization in the history of the world to date has collapsed, right? Nobody uh, has survived forever. If you mm-hmm. look around, there's no Babylonians around, there's no Matanians, there's no, you know, anybody from that time period in terms of cultures and civilizations. So we're going to collapse too. It's just, it's, it's, you know, you don't have to argue about it. We're going to collapse. The question is not if, but when. And then I would say the further question is, and what is going to cause it? And so as I look around at what caused uh, the, the collapse in 1177 and then the collapse of the Roman Empire, right, 1,500 years later, uh, mm-hmm. and then what we've got today, and it's, you know, a little scary that you can look around and see a, a lot of the same things, right? When I taught ancient history, uh, Roman history in particular, I used to put up the causes of the collapse of the Roman Empire and then ask how many do we have around today, and that we have right. a lot of them, uh, and the same thing for the collapse in 1177 B.C. So uh, I am a little worried about that. I'm not going to be chicken little and run around saying the sky is falling. I would just say to people that um, be aware that there's a lot of the same factors around, and, and we should be a little concerned about that. Uh, and look to the future. But beyond that, even if we do survive, uh, the other thing that's happening these days, uh, in part because of the uh, revolutions, rebellions, civil wars, the unrest in the Middle East, 
that we've got a, a lot of looting going on. A lot of the ancient sites from where we get all this information, when we excavate scientifically, when the archaeologists are there, that's all being lost. There are, you know, entire sites in Iraq and in Syria and elsewhere that are being looted, and all of that information that we could have gotten uh, is basically lost. You know, if something shows up on the art market, well, wow, that's pretty, but that doesn't tell us anything about the context. So we need to actively do things like stopping looting and putting through legislation because this is, um, it's a shared cultural heritage, right? We are all one people of the world, if you look at it that way. And if somebody loots an ancient site, it impacts all of us, regardless of what your nationality is. And so that's one of the things I talk about in the new book that you referred to, which will be coming out at the beginning of March, just uh, you know, very soon, uh, called Three Stones Makes a Wall, the story of archaeology. And Three Stones Makes a Wall, it, it comes from a saying that we've got in archaeology that if you find three stones in a row, you're probably looking at a wall. So I wrote, I wrote the book based, you know, based on it's an introduction to archaeology, uh, and I hit most of the the fun major sites: Pompeii, uh, Uzi, the Iceman, the Terracotta Warriors, Tikal, Chichen Itza. Um, you know, your favorite site is probably in there. But along the way, I go into some very serious things about the problems of looting and what we can do about it, and the fact that, as I said, this is a uh, this is our story. It's one story that belongs to all of us. So this then ties back into the policies that we might be looking at today under the presidency of Trump, because if he is impacting things like the National Park Service, which um, employs more archaeologists than any other organization in North America, um, we may see some problems uh, embroiling archaeology that we don't even anticipate now. So I am quite concerned in terms of legislation here in the U.S., but also looting worldwide. What about taking us back to the core? It seems like everything sort of emerges from, uh, let's call it the eastern Mediterranean basin and somewhat into the interior. Is that where we're seeing the nexus of these activities? And is that where we need to look to for issues that have to either be intervened in or monitored? Or how do we, how do we approach these things? And how do you think the, uh, the present administration is approaching these, these issues? Well, we'll have to see how the present administration approaches them. It is, you know, very early in this new presidency. I'm not optimistic, I have to say. Um, and and as you just pointed out, um, the areas that we've been discussing, the Eastern Mediterranean, what is now the Middle East, what used to be the ancient Near East, this is the nexus of all the problems today because that whole region from... You know, Iraq and Afghanistan to Syria, down to uh, Libya and even Egypt. This is where you've got you know the Arab Spring and all the the revolutions and and then the looting that that is going on. You know, and um, we need to take um, a very close look at that. Now, fortunately, there are a lot of archaeological organizations that are are doing that and trying to help out. Um, 
the Archaeological Institute of America, the American Schools of Oriental Research, the two professional mm-hmm. organizations that have people working there. They're helping out here. There's cultural heritage initiatives. You've got um, Safe Saving Antiquities for Everyone. Uh, you've got the Antiquities Coalition trying to help out. Um, and so you've got a lot of uh, people keeping an eye out. They're documenting sites that are looted. They're pushing for legislation uh, so that you, you can't bring in looted objects from Syria. There was recently a memorandum of understanding uh, signed by Obama with Egypt, uh, impact, or taking a look, trying to help with the looting that was going on and is still going on in Egypt. So there are things that are being done by American organizations and international organizations, UNESCO and the like, to try and help out uh, in those regions. But, you know, there's only a limited amount we can do. When when ISIS decides to blow up most of the monuments in um, ancient Palmyra, there's not a lot you can do except look on um, just aghast at what they're doing uh, and then make plans for what to do in the future. So, again, this is something that impacts us all. uh, And um, like I say, with ISIS for the moment, we can only watch and kind of wait for them to be taken out and annihilated uh, before we can move back in and, and fix the damage that they've done. There are a lot of archaeologists involved here, a lot of cultural heritage um, specialists uh, that are, are doing their darndest to help out here, but um, there's only so much we can do while there are ongoing civil wars and other armed conflicts, right? You know, archaeologists being sent into harm's way is, is not an ideal solution. Tell us a little bit more about the upcoming volume. So the upcoming volume is uh, going to be put out by Princeton. It's uh, based a lot on my Introduction to Archaeology course that I've been teaching for 15 years at GW. I've got about 140 students every fall semester. And these are uh, stories, basically, the, the lectures that I give in class. But they're really, I'm telling stories here of how archaeology started out uh, basically uh, as people looting and collecting statues, you know, back in Pompeii, um, and has evolved over the years to a highly scientific and, and technical field that um, it demands a lot, but gives us a lot of information. So uh, along the way, I go through, oh, everything from various sites in North America, Jamestown and, you know, Chaco Canyon and things mm-hmm. like that, but also uh, in in England and in Europe, we look, in fact, at some of the caves uh, that have been painted. I even go back and look at, at Lucy and the footprints at uh, Le Tolly that are, you know, millions of years old, and then uh, the terracotta warriors in China. But along the way, too, I tell the stories of the archaeologists, both male and female, the, the important ones. And uh, these are the ones that I think that, that somebody interested in archaeology uh, that either already knows a lot or knows absolutely nothing can find out more about. So the book is aimed at everyone from, say, age 7 to 70, whether you're an armchair archaeologist or a practicing archaeologist, a student, if it's always been on your bucket list, 
if you're one of the people that says, oh, if I weren't a you know, blank lawyer, Wall Street financer, I would want to be an archaeologist. <laughs> uh, but along the way, I also answer the questions in separate chapters um, that I'm asked most frequently. Like, how do you know where to dig? So I talk about doing archaeological surveys. Uh, how do you know how to dig? So I talk about the actual you know, techniques of how you actually dig at a site. Um, how do you know how old something is? And so I talk about radiocarbon dating and various other things there. Uh, and then the, probably the question I get asked most frequently, do you get to keep what you find? <laughs> to which the short answer is no. And then I explained why well, we don't get to keep what we find and uh, you know we have to study it. And also why I don't think other people should collect things and keep things, which brings us back to the whole looting issue. But then I end the very last bit is a look at what I call future archaeology. Uh, basically, uh, not only are how are archaeologists going to dig in the future, what techniques might they be using, but also when our civilization does collapse and future archaeologists come to dig us, whether it's in 20 years or 200 or 2000, what are they going to find? So I, I take a quick look at, you know, what if somebody excavates the Washington Zoo? How puzzled are they going to be by that? Or if they excavate one of the Smithsonian museums, you know, the museum of natural history point are they going to be confused for a while right uh, but then also uh, what's going to happen how are they going to interpret it when they excavate a starbucks or a mcdonald's are they going to interpret it properly i suspect that they're going to interpret starbucks as a religion rather than as a coffee shop and that maybe you've got the green flowing haired goddess of starbucks and then the ronald mcdonald maybe they're at the head of our pantheon just like you know zeus or jupiter and juno would have been so i think there's a real potential for um our civilization being completely misinterpreted and then you know if they don't know what our cell phones are how are they going to interpret those and think totally. of the amount of information that'll be lost. What are they going to think about our level of literacy if most of our stuff is emails and tweets these days? And, of course, those are gone with the collapse of civilization. So uh, at the very end of the book, I take kind of a fun look uh, at uh, how people might misinterpret us. So the basic idea is that I start out saying that I've wanted to be an archaeologist since I was seven years old, and here are the books that influenced me, and I'm basically hoping that this book will influence you know, somebody who's seven years old out there to become an archaeologist as well, but also well aware that people, you know, especially those who are now retired looking around for something to do, you know, one of the things they say is, here's how you can get involved. Here's how you go on a dig, right? You want to come get it off your bucket list, come dig with me, right? And right. so hopefully it's a book that will appeal to a lot of people, but it also was a way for me to put into writing my love for archaeology and what I find to be the most fascinating stories, both about the archaeological sites and the archaeologists who have excavated them. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring this broadcast to an end. I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. Eric Klein of George Washington University, for providing some insight and some projections on where our field is, has been and where it's going in the future. Thank you very much, Dr. Klein. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on again. And we will see you again 
or broadcast to you again next week at this time. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.